Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett and along with me as always is Braxton Hunter. And today we have a special guest, Nick Quint. Say hi, Nick. The New Testament theologist, author, PhD candidate, learning from the one and only uh, Michael Bird over at uh, Ridley. So hopefully... Uh, Melbourne. Yep, 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 that's me. Hopefully he will rake you over the coals for the next few years and then you'll barely eke by with a pass. But uh, we're excited to have Mike, you today because Mike, we Mike have... Just tells me all you have to do is listen to him because he knows everything, just like you. So if you just listen to your, uh, your Dr. Potter, you pass. Yeah, well, Michael Bird is usually right until he disagrees with me on something, which he does on a few places, which, I mean, he's a Calvinist, so I mean... He, He's wrong in all the ways Calvinists are typically wrong. Uh, and then he's also wrong in all the ways that Anglicans are typically wrong. So, I mean, it's kind of a double thing going. Like, Anglican Calvinists just, you know. But anyway, we love Michael Burr, but we love Nick Quint more. And we've talked about talking about Romans 7 for about two years. And so we finally decided today is the day that we are going to resolve this conundrum for everybody. Um Braxton, uh, you... I'm waiting to see who makes the better case. Who, who makes the better case. I could take you back to... I've preached through Romans three times in my ministry. I could take you back and see what I said on Romans 7 each time, starting with when I was 20 years old, then when I was 26 years old, then when I was about 32 years old, and we could we could synthesize that and see if I covered all the bases, none of the bases, <laughs> or what. Well, what you do is when you when you preach Romans seven and you don't have a firm position, you just give all the positions and say, no matter what, we can all sort of somewhat, which I think this is a bad thing. <laughs> but when preachers, because I've heard preachers do this, we can all sort of somewhat relate to what Paul's saying. Uh, mm -hmm. But that I, I don't actually find that throwaway line to be particularly helpful, given uh, you know the correct position on this. Uh, some positions more correct than others. But Nick, I'm going to turn it over to you to give everyone a layout of the land. What are the exegetical options? We are talking about Romans 7, where Paul goes into what we think is a rhetorical, well, it's 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 a kind of a dramatic uh, speech and character, even if he is the character. But but he starts talking about his dile a dilemma uh, that somebody is facing in light of the law while in the flesh. So Lay out the interpretive options and give give people kind of a lay. And of before the you do, let me just go ahead and put up a very important uh, comment here from Amber, who says, "Does Nick get to talk? It seems like the last couple of live streams I've seen, guests are more like clickbait that sit and listen to JP talk." As well, it should be. <laughs> that, that's the way. It's I hadn't read the whole comment. I didn't expect it to go that hardcore, Jonathan. That's yes. You're muted, Nick. No, I'm not. I'm just being a smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Nick. Floor is yours for as long as you would like it to be. Yes. Oh, that's dangerous. Well, thanks again for having me on, Buzz. This is a this is a delight. Um, so, and JP, jump in because it's it's one of those where I usually don't focus on most of the alternative readings of Romans seven, just the two or three that are most interest to me. Um, but uh, maybe taking a step back, you've got four main schools of thought on Paul as a whole, just to kind of paint the big thousand, you know, 10,000 foot picture. You've got the, the Lutheran or the old perspective, or often called the Reformed Paul, although I think most Reformed theologians probably aren't okay with that, which 
views uh, views uh, Paul, Paul, the major themes in Paul or the major emphasis in Paul as being focused on the individual and his or her relationship between God. So it tends to focus on legal metaphors or forensic categories and individualism, you know, and there's kind of the law court imagery that gets kind of heightened in all of that. So justification has not exclusively, um, but a primarily uh, legal or, or or forensic like connotation, right? And so that's kind of the, the, the old perspective. Uh, Paul or the, the Lutheran Paul. Then you've got the new perspective on Paul. And for anyone who wants a much deeper dive on this, go watch the video we did at Trinity Radio Extra like three years ago. That's probably one of our the most highly viewed videos on that channel before we talk about this. But the new perspective basically said, read Paul as a first century Jew. And that means corporate kind of uh, notions of group identity, um, keeping the law and uh, kind of the issue was, uh, the big issue for Paul was boundary markers between Jew and Gentile. Right, so that's kind of the big thing. So there's a sociological component. Then you've got the Paulitan Judaism school, which basically insists kind of post new perspective that you know you read Paul, everything in Paul uh, is seen from the perspective of first century Judaism. So any any later creeds or dogmatic you know formulations like Nicaea or Chalcedon or the Apostles' Creed, Tr the Trinity, you know, Divinity of Christ, all gets kind of pressed aside, and you have a more <clears throat> in their words authentic Paul that's as Jewish as can be in terms of his contemporaries. Then you have the correct perspective, which is the modified apocalyptic perspective, which mm -hmm. um, essentially views Paul and modified apocalyptic, which views um, Paul as uh, taking the best from all three positions and adding uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the apocalyptic invasion of God back into a hostile cosmic order, reclaiming the light or reclaiming the and making it into light. And so the apocalyptic Paul kind of has that idea. So it takes a very cosmic view of things. Um, sin, evil, death are personified or even living things, if you can say it like that, in Paul's world. And so that's kind of the 30,000 foot view. And where you kind of find yourself in those camps may influence already how you even approach the major debates within Romans 7. Um, as we'll see, uh, JP, I think you're probably new perspective friendly, most of all. I'm, I'm apocalyptic Paul friendly. Um, but I've been, uh, I've been, I've been I, Nick, I've been convinced by Pritchett that I should be in the new perspective camp because when he laid it out to me, it made sense. Both, both sides that typically come up of the new, this stuff about, uh, new protective perspective friendly is better than new perspective. I like the way more friendly to it. I think, uh, the new perspective does not give enough attention to the Greco Romanness of Paul, uh, leaning too heavy into the Jewishness of Paul, but, but yes. So I was going to say, uh, although it does seem to me and William Lane Craig standing in the garden of Gethsemane told me that I was completely wrong about this, but it really, really does seem to me that a lot of this shakes out as much to the analogies used to describe the conceptual realities as it does to the conceptual realities themselves. That is to say, and I, and I realize, I realize everyone on this stream disagrees with me. I'm just telling you that when I've talked to people, particularly Pritchett about this, and they describe for me the difference with, uh, with respect to justification or with respect to, like, instead of our sin being imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us and the analogies that, that go on to that, it seems like we get a different analogy that, to me, doesn't make a substantially different point. Now, that said, the reason I affirm the new perspective or lean to the new perspective is because I think it makes um, 
I think the first half of that, how the Jews looked at their sacrificial system, makes more sense on the uh, new perspective perspective. But uh, so I lean new perspective, but I'm not 100 percent sold that what we're saying about justification and the atonement, and all those kind of things is yeah. as um, novel as is yeah, made and, out and, to me. And, and when, I, when Nick says he's modified apocalyptic, this is basically you trying to drag Douglas Campbell and Karl Barth back into orthodoxy. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm, your modification is trying to drag, trying to drag their best idea. Trying to drag them back into the first century, basically. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that's that's the big picture stuff. Um, but zeroing in on Romans seven, who is? What are should the, somebody read it first? Or read the portion. Go ahead, JP. You've got it in front of you. Well, I'll just start in verse seven. And I explain what the problem is. Yeah, I don't want to start. In ver- I mean, we could start in verse fourteen, but better to start in verse seven, right? <laughs> Sorry, Are you guys. okay? Oh yeah, it's just um, it's a lot of Romans all at once. Go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. A, it is a lot, <laughs> and then plus having to listen to me suck all the air out of the room. At, anyway, okay. So what shall we say? Uh, open. Oh, by the way, open your Bibles <laughs> to Romans chapter seven. We've never been able to say that on Trinity Radio. So uh, if you have a Bible, I have a take, copy. Of, <laughs> I have a copy of the Message over here. Well, that <laughs> right. Take your Passion translation that Mike hates. <laughs> I Mike literally Mike have hates. a copy of the Message. <laughs> yeah. And uh, open your Bibles to Romans. I'm opening it. I will open it. We'll see what it says. Would you like to read the message? No, read read, read it first. (laughs) Okay. I'm reading from the uh, Calvinist uh, Standard Version. What What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good did that which is good then bring death to me by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law is spiritual but i am the of flesh sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God 
in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Okay, so since I've got it here, Nick, uh, why don't I go ahead and read what the message says uh, in verses 17 through 20. Let's see what it says. But I need something more, exclamation point. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help, exclamation point. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. You know, as clunky as the Calvinist Standard Version is, that's even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Did the message capture anything uh, helpful there? No. All right, Nick, break it down for us. So you, you've got, and JP, there's probably dozens of views on this subject, right? Um, you've got the I. So who's the I speaking, right? You know, who, who's the who's the person speaking? Is it Paul uh, as a Jew before Christ? Is it Paul as a Jew after Christ? I think before Christ yeah. and after Christ. Is it um, is it a Gentile? Is it a, a Christian, which is already, you know, an issue calling it a Christian, you know, um, and sorry about the microphone to the people in the chat. Uh, no, okay. This is the best I can do. No, 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 um, no. Don't listen to them. The they chat, need to uh, concentrate harder to hear what you're saying. Yes. It, yes. Go ahead. Nick. Uh and, and I, I jotted a few things now, but basically, you know, is it the experience of the Jewish people, i.e. Israel? Is it uh, is it Adam? Uh, to what extent is it called prosopopoeia uh, or what's often called speech and character, you know, ancient uh, Greco-Roman uh, rhetorical device? Is it, and so you can see already there's, and even there's overlap between those views. You know, you can have a little bit of both in those depending on how you parse the section out. Um, I think Witherington and other people's uh, analysis that verses 7 through 13 and 14 through 25 are related but distinct, you know. Right, because uh, there's a shift in the, there's, there's a shift in the tense from past tense to present tense. And so mm-hmm. that was Wait, one, where? Where is the shift? What verse? Verses uh, 7 through 13 use um, past tense um, and verses 14 through 25 use present tense. But I mean, in terms of verbal aspects and kind of linguistic theory that 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 doesn't tell you as much but it does signal that there are um the aspect is different even if it's viewing the events in a very distinct way there we go but they they are viewing the same sequence of events so you're the whatever view you do is important to note that you need to make account of the shift in tense i think it's important also uh because uh if you read any commentary on romans that's worth anything you you are going to be puzzled by verses 24 and 25 because it seems like plight solution and then statement and you're like some views would flow better if uh, if uh the so then of 25b actually uh 
happened on the tail end of verse 23 so that you have uh 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then it would be nice if he said nothing else, right? But then he goes on with this statement, so then. And then you have, therefore, in verse eight, uh, 1 of chapter 8. So it gets tricky. And so even though I am pretty dead set on my view, and I know Nick's dead set on his view, and other people are dead set on their view, I am sympathetic simply because the shift of past tense to present tense, and then verse 25 seems like the the second part of that verse should actually be at the tail end of verse 23, uh, because it just kind of sits weird in between being the end of verse 25 and uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. So... Uh, wait a minute. Let me, let me follow along with this. So he could be Adam. He could be Jewish Paul prior to conversion. He could be Gentile Paul, Gentile uh, Paul, or he could be uh, a Gentile Gentile person. Yeah. Um, and then what's the other option? Okay. So, uh, okay. It could be Adam. Adam, Why this is so complicated. Okay. You have, you have the Edemic view, Right, we got that. Okay, you have the autobiographical view. It's about him. Either it's Paul, but then within the autobiography view. Before he was a Christian? Before Christian, after Christian. Christian, yes. Then you have, it could be either the Gentiles or general humanity. And, 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 and Nick is saying about this, that the standard way that people have looked at this popularly, at least in, the, in recent centuries. Oh, we're not done. It, or it could be, or it could be, the Jewish, what well, could be a lot of unregenerate Jew under the law, generically. But but you're saying like the typical way people have read this, let's say lay people who aren't thinking about the commentaries and stuff, they just take this to be Paul talking about who he is at present when writing this, right? That's not the. I, I, That's not the majority view. That was like the majority, like the Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, that tradition, and the Reformed. And the, that was common until like the 1950s, and then. Kumo, a German New Testament scholar, basically dropped an atom bomb on that in one of his German monographs in the 50s. Partly because of internal textual things like the changing of tenses, right? Well, or just basically saying Augustine. Um, I mean, Augustine, you know, the, the legacy of Augustine, for better or for worse, is very much a part of, you know, reception history. And he basically said what Augustine saw in the text or claimed of the text is not in the text. And so... He didn't, I didn't think, I don't think his solution was particularly helpful, but he at least pointed out the assumptions of a lot of views when it comes to, you know, understanding, um, you know, um, uh, you know the, the impact of sin and all that sort of stuff. Well, so, the, the, yeah. real quick, our good uh, friends we want to thank, we wanna thank Radio, Jim yeah. Amberg for the uh, substantial oh, yeah. super chat. Channel Angel. That. And our friends at Remnant Radio who recently had us on, and yeah. we were really, that was really great. We enjoyed that. Loved that. So Loved the that after you're... show too. So y'all need to become patrons of them. Uh, and check out our after show where uh, we get a much longer version of the little debate between me and Braxton where I'm like going up against three people instead of just Braxton on the, on the uh, nature of tongues. But that's, that's an interesting question is did, did Paul fall asleep? Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Tertius thought, well, I'll just fill in the rest of this. Well, he said he was problem. kidding, but well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> we don't know. We still don't know if Tertius wrote whatever it was uh, is going on in Romans five, one, and then major textual variants there. So yeah. for all we know, Tertius is the one who created that problem for us. You know, every 
people are going to get to heaven or the new heavens and new earth and they're going to be like i love that line neither death nor and, and tertiary is going to be like I wrote that. Well, for Paul. people that don't know, I made that. Pre- I dressed that up, not Paul. For people that don't know, he's the writer. He's the amanuensis. Okay. Okay. So go ahead. Go ahead. I'm. I'm just. I'm interrupting with thoughts that I think regular people and all the people in the chat may be smarter than me, but regular people might ask. Okay. Go ahead. So here's the problem, Pritchett, that you and I think we need to talk about, and so uh, sin and death. Right. So what what are those? And so and that, that's you know, that's that I'm not saying you have to answer that, but, you know, for everyone in the chat, for everyone listening, just, you know, sin and death. Sin and Paul is both a a a non thing and a thing. Right. It is a power. It is a thing. It is um, has agency in the world. I mean, in Romans five, it talks about sin basically slithering its way, death, even death and sin slithering their way into God's cosmic order. Right. And so yeah, sin so- and death are sort of personified they're basically agents in the world. I mean, ironically enough, like, you know, living things somehow, ironically as it may be. Well, well, just to put it uh, like more in philosophically rigid kind of ways, the New Testament in general, and Paul in particular, there's three ways you could talk about sin or even death. You could talk about uh, and, and I do not use the word spiritual just because that could mean a million different things. But w- when it comes to like, let's take sin first. Sin is literally, you know, breaking a commandment of God, right? I mean, it's breaking the law. Sin is breaking the law. It's like an infraction. We all know, uh, you know, missing the mark, all that harmonia language. But but really, it's just like law breaking. Um, but it can be used in a metaphor sense. So Paul in first Corinthians will say that Jesus who knew no sin, he who knew no sin became sin, like a stand in for like an aggregate or something. So there's a metaphorical sense to, to sin. And then you have the personification understanding of sin, where especially in Paul coming from Romans five sees sin and both death and both of those in Romans five as cosmic powers, you know, that that are reigning literally sin reigns in death and as death reigns you know uh, sin reign all the more so you have this kind of personification of sin that now does paul put any sort of ontology behind those kind of meanings yes and no i mean there's not like a, an actual agent sin but there are agents of that cosmic order for paul right that would include yeah, participants the principalities, of, yeah, kind of a, a network or something like that. Yeah, yeah, the print, the powers and principalities in the air and all of that. Uh, so, so he sees sin as this like you say, like for just like a cosmic power that that rules over things, and that that and of course death. Even John uh, in the apocalypse says that death is a enemy to be defeated. Right, um, so. Those are kind of ways that we think about this. So when you see sin um, in this passage, you can see it playing any number of of those roles because he's talking about a specific sin of coveting, you know, uh, in violation of the commandment to not do that. But you also see, you know, um, sin dwelling within him, doing something, has something, you know, he's kind of personifying it there as having some sort of agency and, and, and power. So, you know, well, and it, and it has a yeah, it's it's a it's an oppress it's it's 
it's described as taskmaster. It's, it's slave language, right? It's in, yeah. you know, so, it's like slave you're masters, sold under Yeah, you're sold. And so I think the apocalyptic, those are major apocalyptic motifs. And I think, I mean, that's, that's in Fourth Ezra. That's another Jewish literature as well, that sin is a brutal taskmaster. Uh, this is going to, you know, a, a hostile or a rogue agent in God's cosmos, you know, like Satan. And so you have competing sovereignties, you have competing, but also because you have competing sovereignties, you have competing modes of existence and reality. You know, the, the language of flesh and spirit as antitheses or as antinomies, right? To be in the flesh is to not be in the spirit. To be in the spirit is to not be in the flesh. You know, and that's, I mean, Paul has a little bit more of a, there's a little more permeability there, but that's kind of the general way he confuses things, especially in Romans 8. And so when we talk about sin or death, we need to conceptualize it apocalyptically. That sin has agency as a, I'll use this language, demonic-esque force or demonic-ish force in the world that exercises agency, that deceives, that dwells, that uh, enslaves, that um, gives birth to death. I mean, even James, you know, for all of James, the book of James ethics, then when fully formed or gestated, it gives birth to death. So there's an agency, there's an intentionality there. And when we kind of make this about autobiography or individualism, we, we miss the corporate and cosmic nature of Paul's kind of vision of the world, right? This grand, great vision of God's, um, uh, of God's sovereign power, but also of rogue elements in God's world that God did not want, right? So God, and that's why the language of war or reign or kingship in Romans 5 through 8 as a distinct unit is so important. Because if, if, if God is, is, is waging war against these things, and we'll and we will reign with him, you know, through suffering with Christ and co-participation in Christ. Then you have a, basically a martyr a, a martyrology, an understanding of suffering and death that is based on the the utter destruction of sin and death, right? And so that's why Romans seven um, doesn't, or at least the, the kind of standard readings don't take into account Paul's apocalyptic concept, a context, and also his epistemology, the way he thinks of the world as a Second Temple apocalyptic Jew, you know. Uh, that's that's i think he's far much i think he's far closer to one enoch or fourth ezra than he is to maccabees or or, or other texts he's, or i should say he's even more influenced by isaiah than others you know yeah you know god's so, cosmic war against sin, evil and death and so that's why that the context of this is so important because when paul puts on the skin of of an argument you know where you know where's the skin of an argument uh as as i would argue as adam then you can see the greater stories from the old testament converging with his understanding of the world and so it's, it's for me it's all a harmonious thing whereas the apocalyptic school sees it as severance i see it as convergence and fulfillment in terms of what paul was talking about so that was a lot to say i really i said a lot i sucked all the oxygen out of the room and i'm choking you both so i apologize so no I will you take no you take you take the you take the adamic approach with a splash of apocalyptic is that right well, his view is the he believes that Paul the in the Prosopoia the 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 character is Adam. Yeah, yeah, but for Paul's his using view. it. Yeah, Paul is speaking as if he's Adam. Right. And that that's okay. his view. Roman, Roman I, I, I stopped paying 13. attention for a minute to deal with the chat and so I was coming back around to get clarification. Yeah, okay, sorry. well, Romans first of all, 7 through 13, Paul Adam is for I'm sorry. Paul is speaking as Adam would speak. Adam before Christ, Adam before all sorts of things. And verses 14 through 25, where we have the present tense verbs and the different sort of aspect, um, Paul adopts the person of the person in Adam as opposed to the person in Christ. And so it's, it's kind of, he's basically taking the, 
the, the and so you can find aspects of autobiography there. You can find aspects of Jewish, you know, conceptions there, but it's underneath Adam as representing the entire sinful cosmic structure, you know, as in Adam all die. Adam being the, the Adam and Eve actually bringing mortality, corruption, and death to the world. And so him wearing the skin of Adam is not just something he's just not doing. He's been, he's been utilizing Adam, I would argue, straight through Romans 1 with his, uh, his implicit use of creation and Genesis language, you know, the, the birds and the beasts and the glory. There's the and creation all that of the world. Okay, right. so Paul is embodying Adam, and it may incorporate uh, aspects of the other views on what Paul is doing here, but that's just the nature of, of the fact of, so, of who and when. But what are you saying is happening? Here? See, I think it's a little bit more specific than just saying Adam is a type of all humanity under the law. Because, now, wait a minute. Let's not get confusing. Are you yeah. nuancing his view for him, or are you telling me your view? My view. Okay. Because what you just asked. Well, so that usually I, doesn't matter. But I'm, <laughs> so I think that he is, he is more specific... And talking about um, the Israelite, the unregenerate Jew, which would include Paul in an unregenerate state, but but um, but that he's speaking of the typical unregenerate Jew under Torah, right? So you would agree with uh, you would agree with Just Stone, who says Romans seven is Paul speaking from the perspective of a Jew and showing why Jesus is necessary. Pretty much, yes, because. Because to, here's why um, I think that. But before I before I make the case for mine, we probably need to stop right here, and then I'm going to let Nick give his reasons, and then I'll build on that. Why we don't think that this is Paul talking about himself as a Christian and being uh, related. So so I think that's a, that's like you had said you had thought that that was kind of the dominant view. I think that's not the dominant view at least not in academic circles it's kind of all over i mean i could find you a calvinist who thinks all of these different views i can find you an arminian well, who yeah, thinks all know. Different, right. but you're saying the dominant view is not that this is just paul saying paul's talking right about. i think i think it's pretty well balanced it, it all depends on which commentaries you read <laughs> whatever commentaries the preacher reads and likes best so, so there isn't a standard me my bible in the old oak tree way of reading this there is that and that would probably go, well, Paul's talking about the same thing I deal with as a Christian, trying to be good, not being able right, to right. That's what I'm saying. I yeah. thought that would be considered the standard layman popular level approach. And well, you guys are saying maybe not. Well, at least it, at least in the U.S., so uh, probably so, at least since the 50s, or, uh, as he said. So, Can someone take care of the super chat for me before we do move on with that, Nick? What does it mean to describe a passage as apocalyptic? Thank you, Tim, the ancient my. Twitter spirit animal. I'm sorry. I'm distilling far too many hours of reading this. It's okay. I'm watching your brain. I'm watching your face and marveling at what I know is turning and moving behind that beautiful forehead. So take your time. Okay. So yeah, it's going to be a five head soon. Uh, so I think to call it apocalyptic is, is to do two things. One, it is to um, is, is to try and categorize Paul's worldview or his epistemology, the way he thinks about things. What is he articulating based on things he's presupposing or that he's come to conclusions of, and what and so on and so forth. Um, the second is, and, and by by that I mean um, you've got um, certain understandings of apocalyptic eschatology or or worldview or epistemology in, in Second Temple Judaism that center on kind of key themes. Um, 
the heavenlies, the principalities, the powers, light and darkness, sin and death, light, you know, kind of these antitheses um, that, the, that it's, um, there's a cosmological view of things. There's a, a big picture kind of grand drama, um, often using warfare language, like for, think for, uh, for example, of Isaiah uh, 65 and 66, you know, coming down in chariots and fire and flames and stuff like that. It's incredibly cinematic. So it's, it's part of, it's part of a, um, it's an aspect of a literary genre, but it's an aspect of the worldview and the eschatological beliefs of the person writing that literature. That's that I think is maybe not always there, but an important way to look for it is if it's talking about eschatological stuff, oftentimes you'll see Jesus make apocalyptic statements and things like that. Yeah, I like I like your phrase cinematic because what what I if or I epic, I was thinking yeah, epic. Because the way I distill it down is for an apocalyptic in general is all of that bigger picture stuff, right? More grand scale world events. But for a Christian, it, it, looks at, it looks at it looks at cosmos. It looks at um, it looks at the big. It looks at the cosmos, the whole world, the created realm, um, right. and the competing sovereignties of that realm. But right. also um, how that impacts daily life. Right. So it, That's both, apocalyptic it, it, in general. But for the for a Christian like Paul, for 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 him, the way I distill it is is that yes, Paul has a Jewish background, but for Paul and the you know the apocalyptic Christian idea is that the Christ event invades our time and space and completely unmasks the full spectrum of the cosmic drama. Whereas most people are, are focused on the right here, right now, earthly, what's going on in front of my face. And for Paul, the, the life, death, and resurrection completely unmasks it's the full sweep down. of what's going it's on. It's a top-down perspective instead of a look-around-you-right-now right perspective. Right. Okay, we've spent too much time on that. I just wanted to get to that, and it was a helpful question that did shed some light. So, so you asked Nick to go ahead yeah. and speak further to his case. Is that what you No, said? no, no. I'm going to let Nick speak first to why he does not think this is Paul having an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the doing what you I, and I might. Yeah, do. I can't help but sin and I don't want to sin, but I'm still sinning and I hate it. And why is Paul not talking about his struggles? I mean, as a that Christian is hardcore relatable, but it could be one of those situations where a preacher says something that is definitely true. It's just got nothing to do with the text. He just wrote. Right. Yeah. right. And if it and if it is true, it's a problem. And if, and if it is true, it's a problem. You're not relying on the spirit. So so why is Paul not talking about his uh he can't get it together as a Christian view. <laughs> well, I mean, Paul does, Paul's, not a, Paul's not a modern existentialist, and so there's already that issue. And Christopher Stendhal's, um, I forget exactly what, Paul and the introspective conscience of the West was part of kind of the revolution of the new perspective, right? And he basically said, Paul is not an existentialist in the way we often think of it. You know, thinking about our individual selves and our, our, our emotions, our fears, and all our guilt and shame and stuff like that. That's, he said that's a basically a modern Western thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think Romans 7, um, I, if, if preached correctly... Can we put a pen right there? That. Right there, though. Yeah. I, I, I love that essay. But Sindal still kind right. of overstates that because... Anyone who's read Augustine knows that he has an existential crisis like every 15 pages, even He's over his own erections. So, I yeah. mean, you know, the guy is... So, when you say in the ancient world they weren't... He kind of takes that a little too far because mm -hmm. once you start reading authors in the ancient world, I mean, even going back to Homer, you can, you can think of Achilles being whiny for several of the first books of the Iliad. So, yeah. 
but that was centered on honor and shame and patronage and Greco-Roman right. virtues and stuff like that, which is not the same as we don't think like that. I mean, okay, most of us don't think don't think like a person for Greco-Roman and probably for better, probably for the better. Um, and so I, I think Paul doesn't have that kind of he's not Soren Kierkegaard. Like that's that's just the easiest way. He's not a Christian right. existentialist. Um, and so you can find truth in it and read it that way for pastoral or devotional impact. And I think that's entirely reasonable. I don't think Paul would object to that. Um, I think the issue is more um, if Paul is speaking of Adam, and I think he is because Adam's the last major historical figure that he's invoked. And it's at the very beginning of the entire discourse, starting in chapter five, um, then everything we want to say about um, Romans seven, whether it's Jew or this or this or this, must be under the paradigm of Adam. And so we can talk about why other things are wrong, but I think the issue is more if, if Adam is the, the skin that Paul is wearing, you know, the speech and character of the person speaking, um, as Quintilian often talked about, uh, an ancient rhetorician that um, Witherington leans a lot on, and I think largely to, I think largely effectively, um, then what we say after has to be seen in that paradigm. So if we want to talk about the issue of, of, of why this isn't um, why, about a modern Christian's existential angst, um, you can actually apply it to that, I think, provided it's under the Adamic rubric. Because then you would think about it this way. Let's say I'm right. Romans 7, uh, 7 through 13 is Paul's kind of recapitulation of what he's already talked about in Romans 1, you know, the, the exchange in the glory of God, the fall of creation, kind of the, the fall of civilization narrative, right? Then you have Romans 5 and the slithering in of a sin and death. Excuse me. And then you've got here kind of the capstone of how these things impact the human person. And you have the very specific thing of the rhetorical device of what then shall we say or what therefore shall we say, which is common throughout Paul that introduces a question that is then refuted or answered or nuanced often for a long discourse. Think of, of, of Romans 4.1, of Romans 9, you know, all these sort of kind of Paul's answering these sorts of questions. He's not asking, and the, and the Gentiles and the, and the Jewish Christians in Rome aren't thinking like modern existentialists. They're thinking about very key things in the world that, that I've already mentioned. They're thinking about uh, Caesar's power and imperialism. They're thinking about cosmology. They're thinking about temple worship and imperialism and ideo royal ideologies. And they're thinking about Satan. Like they're thinking about all these sorts of things. How, and they're thinking about uh, meat sacrifice to idols. They're thinking about power dynamics. They're thinking about all sorts of things. How do we engage with this? And the best way that Paul can do it is to go, there's two kind of representative icons, kind of icons of humanity. You have Adam and you have Christ, and you are no longer in Adam. But for those who are in Adam, this is what that looks like. And he kind of plays, plays, the Adam, plays Adam and then plays the Adamic person under Adam, the in Adam person. And you can see by, uh, on the basis of that, we can therefore look at that and go, I find myself in Adam. I see myself in that, whether through addiction, whether it's through agony, whether it's through even all the existential stuff that, you know, is not what is intrinsic to the passage. You can therefore read it that way, provided you understand who Paul is speaking about and find your kind of life in that, which I think is incredibly powerful. Are you, for are you, are you saying, and are, all that sort of Nick, are you saying right. that, because, I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying because you take the view that this is from the perspective of a person who is in Adam, um, in the corporate group that's in Adam, then, and, and because we all know what that's like, we are going to find aspects that we can relate to there, but, and that's fine. And that's not even not, that's not even not fair. It's just, or, or a bad, it's not even, 
that's not even bad necessarily. It's just so long as you know the the deeper point that Paul is trying to make while in getting past that. Is that what you're saying? As long as you framed it correctly, you framed you know the the questions and the materials correctly, then you're able to find yourself in the passage. Because if you're if you bring yourself to the passage, you go, okay, where am I in it? And I do this. You're not going to see anything. You're going to see, you know, as, as the famous German liberal theologian said, we went looking for the historical Jesus, thinking we'd find him, and we looked down the well and we saw our face reflecting back. You know, we found ourselves in the text and nothing more. Um, okay, so Nick, but if, Nick if, you're, if you're if you're the teacher, if you're like the kindergarten teacher that comes over to my table and says, "Now, honey, that's good, that's good, but that's not really the main point." Um, that that helps me, but it also means that you're a little bit of a crowd pleaser. Jonathan, why is his view wrong? Because he's just trying to please everyone and have his cake and eat it too. It's not pleasing okay, the crowd. Well, it's saying the people, first, the I'll, people I'll, have, I'll, have a right sort of mentality about it, but the framing is wrong. The epistemology is wrong. Yeah, I, I got what you mean. I'm just kidding. You have well, the wrong epistemology. You're so I'll mean, take, Braxton. I can't believe you're doing me dirty like that. Okay, uh, I will take the, the why, I'll add to what he said, why this is not the Christian or Paul giving his autobiographical view as a Christian. Okay. So if you look at somebody mentioned a verse, I think it was Sam brought up a verse from Romans six. So Romans six and make this rough. If you can, I'm eager to disagree with one of you. Go uh, ahead. Yeah. And Romans six, Paul has already talked about what it's like to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And of course we're no longer enslaved to sin for the one, uh, uh, has died, has has been set free from sin, and don't let sin reign in your members and, and use your members as weapons of righteousness. All of that stuff's going on in 6. But even more to the point, the, the person in Romans 7, this person crying out, he is in the flesh. In Romans 8, you're in the Spirit. If you walk according to the flesh, you will die, Romans 8. So if you in Christ, those are in the Spirit. The Romans 7 man's in the flesh. If uh, he says he is waging war in Romans 7, uh, the spirit, the uh, uh, the law spirit of uh, <laughs> life in Christ has set you f- free from the law of sin and death, and is life and peace in Romans eight and Romans seven. He's waging war. Do you think that? There, so you think this is an intentional setup that way with seven and eight, even though we know the chapters and all blah blah yes, blah. Yes, and because so, Brando asked this, and I think you're answering it now. Why is it that this one chapter seems to just go off on a tangent? and into a different style of writing, and then Romans 8, we are back again, or is Romans 8 not what it seems either? And it sounds like you're answering that question by saying, Romans no, 8 is not pro point. Yeah. 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 Romans 8 is, therefore, and, and what's, what's the old so preacher? Romans 8 is... The, what's the preacher line, Braxton? If it says, therefore... Said, what is the therefore, therefore? therefore I've right, never exactly. said that, but yes, that Thank is the Thank goodness line. you've never said that. <laughs> but no, it, 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 it starts off, uh, Romans, and Romans... Romans 5 through 8, Romans 8.39 is kind of um, uh, inclusio back to, to uh, Romans 5.1. So that brackets off the section. But Romans 8.1 and Romans 8.39 forms its own little section. That, that you know. And this is not uncommon in the book of Romans. Right. And it's also not uncommon with Paul that you would have to put occasionally some parentheses in to make total sense out of exactly what he's saying because Paul, and I hope you don't take this as uh, uh, disrespectful to the apostle, but it, it he, he kind of uh, goes on rabbit trails, right? Now, they're yeah. good rabbit trails, but yeah. he does go on rabbit trails. If you read well, he's rabbit, rhetoric he camp books, on the rabbit trails because these are questions his churches are asking him about. So well, he's just being a good pastor. 
Romans was not his church. But Romans 5, <laughs> Romans 5, which is not what we're doing today, but in Romans yeah. 5, you don't put some parentheses in there. Well, Romans 5 through 8 is... Romans 3, what is it, 9 through... Romans 9, 3 is, is almost its own, right? I mean, first they were yeah, given the very words of God, and then he doesn't say anything else about second, third, or fourth. He says, and to them were the promises and the worship and all of that other stuff in Romans 9. So, I mean, Paul goes on a lot of digressions, but but Paul also, you look at the diatribe as a rhetorical device he uses. Why would this not be one more, the prosopoia, one more rhetorical tool uh, that he has in his toolkit when he uses every other Greek, go read Quintilian, go read Socrates, all the way back to Aristotle's rhetoric. All of the tool, the tricks that you could do as a rhetorician are you find in the book of Romans. Why not this one as well? Okay. But if you look at the contrast between the Romans seven at war, death, you know, body of death, um, in the flesh versus Romans eight, the no condemnation of Christ Jesus, life, peace in the spirit, no condemnation. What? For those in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and not in Adam. For what the law, I just do wanted to point out here that 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 we do have corporate language in Paul, and the, it seems like here. But look, also Nick is doing better as he's talked more because it started out with the poll that right. Jonathan was winning, but and he still is, but it's turning back the other way toward Nick. So okay, Nick, but Sam is tracking with me because he quoted from Romans six, and then I showed the difference between the Romans seven man, Romans eight man, which is why um, Paul's not talking about either himself or any of y'all as Christians. Uh, but the reason why I want to narrow this further into why it's not Adam, I think Adam, uh, I think if, if you had Romans five and then Romans seven, I would, this is the way to understand Romans six or seven. I would be like, yes, but I think Adam is too far away. And when the contrast of the two humanities, those in Adam and those in Christ in Romans five, uh, 12 through 21, but then in Romans, what do you, what, what do you mean he's too far away? In the text, because there's this whole... He's gotten past that. Oh, yeah, Paul forgot in the five minutes of writing. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Adam. I'm going to do something else. Like, come on. No, that's no, like, we no, don't accept that. No, because it he, should be time to kick it back to he Nick. Goes into, he goes into a discussion in Romans 6 about what Christians should do in light of their position in Christ. And and then all of a sudden he talks about slaves to sin versus slave righteousness and all of that stuff. And then, you know, he decides to... To, to, to assess things, and he's like, okay, um, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? Yeah. Verse 1 of chapter 7, yeah. and I think after all that stuff about, here's how awesome you are in Christ, so don't be doing all that bad stuff. Don't continue to sin, so grace can't be that stupid, all this other stuff. He's In 6, he's going back to the diatribe from verse 3, or chapter 3, where he's diatribing with uh, unbelieving Jews, right? Those are the interlocutors. Yeah, that's the people that know the law. And he's dragging up the interlocutor in 6, and then in 7, he's like, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So I think that he pulled... Okay, all right. Now mentions you, Adam, but in 6 okay. and 7, coming back to the diatribe of his interlocutor, and he says, clearly, at the first verse, I'm talking to those who know the okay, law. Okay, okay. So he's not talking about those Adam, know the I think law, he's talking law, that's about... the Jews. Right, okay, right. we got that. You're done. That's you my good. case. Now, Nick... The floor is yours. Why am I wrong? Well, I, I already talked over you, so I apologize for that. But no, I, do that I, more. I think, gosh, no, I, I think we have. We, there's an aspect that gets missed here, and it's the rhetorical device of what then shall we say, right? Um, oh, look, no one. Um, and, and when Paul does that, he usually imbibes a sort of I'm 
putting myself in the mind of the interlocutor, Romans 4.1. What then shall we say? Uh, that was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. You know, he's he's putting himself in the, he's voicing an objection or a question. That's very common in Paul. Um, and we see that in Romans 6.1. What then shall we say? Shall we go on saying? So that grace may increase. But that doesn't make any sense unless you continue the conversation that was talked about Adam and Christ, the parallelism and the typology. Those are like major figures that Paul just doesn't suddenly stop. Like it just leaves his mind when he starts talking about it. Um, I mean, then you go into Romans 7, 7, you know, what then shall we say? That's a lot of sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You know, and so you have like, you have the, the figure of Adam is so woven into the, the, the substructure of Romans that I, I think to kind of go that route, you, like at that point, it's like, well, what's the end of context, right? You know, this, Adam is the principal figure through whom, at least, you know, for Paul, where sin and death come. He is the source of this. Paul doesn't suddenly lose that when he gets, you know, not even chapters later, 10 minutes of writing with Tertius. Like, you know, if the writing 10, 15 minutes, he suddenly stops thinking about that. I, I just don't buy it. And I mean, who who is alive with, uh, apart from sin? What does it say here? Let me pull it. I have the NIV, so forgive me if there's something goofy. Just give me one sec. Sorry. That's the uh, Bible. The Independent Fundamentalist yeah, Baptist. So verse nine, once, I, once I was alive apart from the law. Who didn't have the law except for the one commandment, don't eat from the tree? That'd be Adam and Eve. That's verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So already, like, that Dang. sounds like, you know. It's, that's pretty it's good, Jonathan. Good, yeah, that's Ben Witherington's argument because both Ben Witherington and him assume a, a an anthropology that you can't even get from Romans 5. Dude, it's which, right he there. He rejects the anthropology I'm of Romans 5, but then brings it back to Romans 6 to act like that's... Wait, 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 wait. The Bible Nick, teaches it anyway. Nick, what are you saying? What I'm hearing you say is Adam is baked into the book of Romans as a as a concept, as a corporate concept. As a figurehead. As, as he's, as, he's as integral to Paul's argument in Romans as Christ is. Not and, as and, much as Christ, Christ not, does Adam, but without right. Adam... And Adam being in the substructure of the rhetoric, you don't have it. Right. If I wrote a book that was half about Satan and half about God, God would be more important. But it's not. But we could still say Satan is as much a part of this book in terms of content. And Adam is baked in. And you're giving me a passage where Paul is speaking as though he is Adam because he's speaking of a time before the law. Jonathan, uh, well... Did you finish what you want to say about that, Nick? I doubt it. Well, and, and there's, there's an, and the, the way Adam functions also in apocalyptic literature, you know, like Fourth Ezra is very similar. You know, when Adam transgressed my statutes in Fourth Ezra, um, chapter seven, he, he talks about um, what was made was judged. You know, condemnation, toil, and sorrow—all these things came from Adam. You know, the figurehead, the the, the original anthropos, the person that was given a single commandment. You know, in, in the singular, do not eat from the tree, or what I'm butchering it, but y'all can eat from whatever thing you want. Eat the bugs, eat the rice, I don't care. But don't eat from this one tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? Oh, that tree, oh my gosh, it must be so good stuff. And so when you break the commandment, then all this stuff comes. And that fits into the emergence of sin and death in the world very nicely with the emergence of sin and death into the world in terms of power that is seen in Romans 5, 12. And oh, death even good. reigned from Adam to Moses. So death was in the world before the law was even here. Nick, so you're, Adam you're, gaining, you're gaining percentage points by the second. Uh, wait, what What percentage point are we talking about? I ha I'm asking who is in a poll on the chat. I'm asking who is more right about all of this. It started out heavily on Jonathan's side, but now you're climbing the ranks really fast. 
Well, and it, I'm not saying JT's alive. Well, it's alive. Well, it's alive. And gives a better paradigm for his view. That's what I'm saying. I'm making yeah, it more I'm just trying to make it more aggressive than what was 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 the um, now Paul makes a comment on the sin of both Adam and Eve at different places in the New Testament. Okay. First uh, Timothy two, right? Talks about Eve being deceived. The woman that was deceived. About, yeah, and Adam was just Nick doesn't like Adam's that, act of disobedience was uh, was. Indeed, eating, right? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. Well, yeah. It was the, the one act of dis- Was that one act of disobedience? We're going back to Romans five, where he's hanging his hat on the one act of disobedience you contrasted the with the one act. Was that one act of disobedience ever in Paul have anything to do with coveting? I don't know. I don't know. Wait, Nick, what? go ahead. All right, so rephrase that for me, please. Rephrase that for me, so I can actually where, hear what you're saying without. Where I, has Paul? In any discussion of Adam or Eve, the garden, linked that sin with coveting. Here. That, okay, question beggar. <laughs> Where, well, I mean, I, I don't need other texts to make the point when the context seems to make it. Paul only speaks of Adam, what, twice in the entire New Testament? We don't therefore go, oh, it's irrelevant or, or it's inapplicable. I'm making an argument from the text, but I see your point. Like, I, I get your point. I think Paul is doing something very unique here that he doesn't do elsewhere, which I'm entirely comfortable saying because Paul only once or twice researched women in ministry, and I don't go, uh, well, got to research all women for ministry based on one or, well, one passage. Uh, that's Paul that right, you know. But. Well, I'm saying, what I'm saying is, I think, again, Adam is too far away. The Adam versus Christ typology leads into six, but the whole discussion of being in six goes back to before he introduces Adam uh, or the creation language of uh, Romans one eighteen. He's talking about what is what is he dealing with in this this entire book of Romans? Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gen- first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Right. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He sets this whole book up. Jews and Gentiles. And I mm-hmm. think here his focus is not general humanity uh, under Adam, whether you're an unbelieving Jew or 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 someone who hadn't converted. He's talking to those who know the law, who understand all of this, and say, you know. Uh, this is your plight, the plight of the Israel, unregenerate Israel, in light of the law. Here is your thing. Now, what he what he's trying to do here is he's trying to seize upon an anthropology uh, because that you can't get from Romans five anyway. But the the thing is, he is he's not talking about literal death, like I would you know. That's not what Paul's talking about in, in this died. section. Like, 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 the, so, like, he died. Like, it's, a, it's compression. Like, Paul's not thinking in terms of giving a whole, you know, here's thousands of verses on it. Stuff. He's not like literal, God. like literal death, right? That, that's not what he yeah. means. I mean, here. If, he's Adam, if he's if he's speaking, doing speaking character as Adam, then he can appropriately say sin sees, uh, and I'm butchering because my fan blew the Bible over now. I, I but that's not it. just Adam. Say it again, Nick. So sin sees an opportunity, and I don't have to I have to go scrolling through the Bible because my fan off to go. Sin sees an opportunity, and I died. You can speak as Adam because that's proleptic, and that fulfills all the typological aspects. It fulfills creation. It fulfills the context because, again, Jew and Gentile underneath that paradigm, if they're all under Adam, then what else is there for boasting? 
we've already judged that every, all have sinned or all are under sin. That's a cosmic universal thing that is being applied to Jew and Gentile because that's the main you know, focus. But that doesn't exclude a cosmic or universal component. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that that this is what happens. I'm thinking he's more focused on, on, on the unregenerate Israel. And he's picking back up on another theme of Romans five about. Wait, may may, may I interrupt? Because I think I, I think I understand where you're coming from now. If I, can I, can I say it back to you? Yes. The, the law, you're thinking of, uh, let me, okay, so let me, before I butcher the passage, because I don't want to get yelled at by, by our Lord when I die and go to heaven. Think about um, what he says about the law. What did the law do in Romans 5? He restates it here. No, no, no. In you're Romans. Of Romans. You, you <coughs> mentioned this. Uh, for I'm speaking to those who know the law in verses, in chapter 7, verse um, uh, uh, 2, and then he gives the example of, of marriage, right, and, and death yeah. and divorce, right? So are you telling me that the Gentiles don't know the law or don't have the law? No, chapter, I'm saying that Romans chapter two seems to say that that they actually do. It's written on their heart, even if they don't obey it. No, I don't think that's what Romans chapter two is saying either. I think Romans chapter two is talking about Gentile believers, and you understand that once you get to Romans eight, by way of Romans seven, uh, the 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 new way of the Spirit, not the letter. Um, I think that goes all the way back to Romans two, that in 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 twelve through sixteen, that you're you're having uh, Paul talk about. Uh, Gentile Christians, and in fact, Thomas Schreiner, who used to reject that view in 1998 when he published his first edition of the Baker Commentary, came around to agreeing with N.T. Wright uh, and other people, uh, commentators, people like me who that's, say, that's yeah, perfectly right. N.T. Wright and Thomas Schreiner are allowed to be wrong on this point. God bless them, and they're probably right about it, and I'm probably wrong, but they're allowed to be wrong on that too. So you're, you're taking the, your mind, the like, uh, see how you understand one part of Romans has tentacles that go through the whole book, right? This is why I think we need a Romans roundtable of everyone with different positions to hammer this stuff out. It'll be a 24-hour Chap- live stream, right? Chapter by chapter. I'll take you up on this. Give me give me two minutes, and I will see how this goes through the whole book of Romans. All right. So you have the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of course, happening before all of this, but Paul speaks of it, the resurrection of the Son of God in power. By the resurrection, I'm sorry. I have the text in front of me here. Uh, da, da, da. Regarding his son, as who as to his earthly life, or according to the flesh, was a descendant of David, and, through, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed or established or installed son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christ is already asserted as the solution to whatever problem that may follow. The lordship of Jesus Christ reigns over the entire book of Romans. Then Paul talks about what he wants to do and what he hopes to accomplish, the obedience of the nations, blah, blah, blah. This is a missionary, or as Robert Hewitt called it, I think he's somewhat right, even if I don't think it's the expensive aspect of it, is that this is a, mission, a fundraising letter for Paul's missionary journey to Spain. And if Paul can't get Jews and Gentiles in the church to agree with one another, he's going to be selling what looks like a broken gospel. Why would anyone believe that? But also the issue of uh, if God has severed the people of Israel, and why aren't people believing in Israel's God, he has to deal with the question of Jewish unbelief, hence the problem of Romans 9 to 11. But before that, he has to establish and, under, and, and articulate what the problem is. And he starts with creation. Paul is a creational theologian. He's a pastor theologian. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and blah, blah, blah. You know, the great, you know, vice list of Romans chapter one. But that is all predicated on creation, that they knew God and yet they did not give glory to God. And then you have the echoes of Adam throughout Romans one. You have the, uh, God handing people over. And furthermore, 
um, God gave them over to a depraved mind and blah, blah, blah. And it just goes on. Then Paul does rhetorical devices in Romans 2 saying, therefore, you have no excuse. And he goes through Romans 2 about Jews in the law and Gentiles in the law and God's righteous judgment. But that is all apocalyptic because God's activity is being manifested against sin and unrighteousness. Then you get to chapter 3. Then you have faithlessness. And then you've got all that. Then you've got the wonderful discourse on where Paul is basically like, you know, copy and paste all these old Jewish texts to make my point, which is perfect and wonderful. And it's says, called a catena. Uh, use, use the highbrow language. It's called a catena, Romans 9 through 20. No, because then the people won't understand me. I'm a man of the people. I'm a blue-collar theologian, JP. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known or is apocalyptically disclosed, to which the law and the prophets testify. But the revelation of God has been testified by laws and prophets, but is confirmed through them, but also gives them new meaning because incarnation trumps everything else. Incarnation as an apocalyptic paradigm is Paul's epistemology. You and I agree on that. Death, resurrection, incarnation, resurrection, all that sort of stuff of Jesus is in the substructure. But you need an enemy and you need an antithesis to solve the problem. If Christ is the solution, what is the problem? The problem at the fundamental level is the Adamic substructure of sin, evil, and death that has given, re given breach to the human relationship between Jew and Gentile. So this the sociology, the differences between people groups, works itself out because of Adam's sin implicating all of humanity. It is a, it's a shock wave that ripples throughout. Then I'll skip Romans chapter 4, not because I have anything, don't have anything to say about it, because I want to honor the two minutes. Then you get to Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, let us enjoy peace with God. I'm taking Tim Porter on that. But then he talks about the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have, the reconciliation we have. But then the problem is, but what then of Jew-Gentile issues? What then of sin and persistence and death? And incorruptibility and all sorts of things. Well, then Christ therefore becomes the solution to the Adamic problem that he's been talking about the whole time. That Christ, all in Adam die, all in Christ will be made alive. And then you have the antithesis, the parallelism set up. Then you get to chapter six. What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul's a pastor and he's like, I know what you're thinking because you're sinful little heathens. You're going to think that this is a license to do stupid things because you've been sanctified and made perfect, which is a problem in Corinth. And so he goes, no, baptism into Christ is death to self. It's death to the Adamic realm. But the problem is people still die. People still have issue with that. And then Paul goes, you know what? I'm going to bring Adam back just in case you didn't get it. And I'm going to talk to you as if I'm Adam and put you in the place of Adam, which is where you were and are if you're hearing this now. So notice you can incorporate both ideas. And then what is the solution to this problem? It was asserted in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the big picture kind of thing, just so people can see how this all ties together, at least in my perspective, and I could be wrong, just so people get a third, you know, two-minute, you know, three-line of everything. So I kick it back to JP to uh, enjoy the oxygen in the room that I was talking about. Sorry about that. There yeah, big picture sometimes causes you to miss some of the small details that are very important. And I just so I I see in Romans seven thirteen, kicking back and echoing what he said in Romans five twenty, right? What was the purpose of the law, right? And he's talking to a sizable Jewish minority there in Rome, and he's talking about Jew Gentile relations from twelve to fifteen. I mean, that live together better. Right. He's dealing with Jew Gentile stuff. And the reason why I don't think he's going to Adam is what he talks about the, what the law did to increase the trespass. And then in 713, he reiterates that idea to 
call you back to this is bigger than just Adam, and he's more focused because he's trying to first to the Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. What did he always do? He always ran into the synagogue first, and then then he'd start right. I mean, first to the Jews, then to the Greek was also Paul's modus operandi, not just the global. Uh, way the gospel unfolded in Jerusalem and Judea and then mm-hmm. outward uh, through the Gentile mission. And I'm saying is he's recalling back. I'm talking to you, those under the law is an interlocutor throughout the whole thing until you get to Romans 11 is a Jewish interlocutor. And I think because Adam is so far away, it still ties into the unregenerate Jew. But I think his point here is to show the unregenerate Israel this is you. You are the I. This is your dilemma. Now, whether or not it was Adam's dilemma is, I don't know. Um, but there's reasons, again, the coveting have... thing. Sorry, I'm sorry. And, and so that's why I think the I. Now, just to, just for full disclosure, I think that your view is the second most likely. And then I think that the Paul autobiography is like somewhere way away. Now go ahead, spew out your retort, please correct me. Get it out. You let do it go. not. You, if you do have not hate have in your heart. Israel. Let it out. You do not have Israel without Adam first. So what? That doesn't mean that the character he's playing is Adam. No, but it has to presuppose Adam. Because you don't. So I what? Mean, who is, this is about who is the I, not can you tie the I, I made Adam the wor- I made the world for their sake, and when Adam transgressed my statutes, what uh, has been made was judged. And so the entrance of this world were made narrow and sorrowful and toil. There are few and evil, full of dangers and involved in great hardships. But the entrances of the greater world are broad and safe, which really yield the fruit of immortality. That's fourth Ezra seven. Adam is the figurehead of Israel. Adam is the one. So you can have your view. I actually think your view is probably correct, but it has to go through Adam. Okay, we could end because, No, no, no. Because this, because this, an Adamless Israel, a figureheadless Israel. Adam okay, represents I, I, Israel. But the question wait, wait, is, wait, 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 in the speech wait. and character, is Paul playing the Adamic role or is he playing the unregenerate Israelites role. Wait, wait, wait. Yes, that's the question. Not, of course. What is the theological framework of, of the eye? What is of Paul's no, use of the eye? What is, me, who is the eye? That's what you're, we're asking. You're trying to who, say he, who the being, eye is. He's being charitable and saying to you that your way is technically right. No, no, it's in his view and taking it from my own and saying he's right, but he's not right enough. Well, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, here's the thing both of your views technically touch the other view. Uh, in, insofar as Nick wants to say, yeah, because of our relationship to Adam at points at, at prior in our life, we are going to exhibit some of the things. And so Pritchett gets to be right. But then Pritchett is is saying things that are also we're all kicked off because of Adam. So he technically so Nick technically gets to be right. I, I, the question then becomes, OK, yes, th- this is why actually this crystallizes the confusion for me, because they are very, it is a very nuanced difference, even though the ultimate answer is one or the other in what was Paul thinking of trying to present as his voice, right? Yeah. So, so y'all, y'all are. We've got to have it out over Romans 2 and who those Gentiles be in 6. Uh, is that in chapter 2? No, but we need to have that out because, because they're Gentile Christians. And he needs to believe that. 
Listen, <laughs> I, it sounds to me like we got down to something, but Jonathan, I still need an answer to this. What? I still need, there's one thing that Nick tossed out here that to me is like a big red flag for your view sticking right up out of the earth. Okay. And that is this business where he has to be speaking as not himself. There wasn't really a point he didn't know about the law. And it sounds like he's talking about Adam. And so you got to find a way to oh, square that about, circle. I was alive before the law, then the law came and then yeah. I died, right? Yeah. I. Yeah. Huh? Yes. That. Adam? Nick, say it better than go, me. Go ahead. No, 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 no I, I, I want you I was, to. I was going to rabbit trail, but no, that's fine. Okay, don't rabbit trail, but but did I express that correctly? I think so. Uh, I really want a rabbit trail. No, I'll be good. Uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, okay, yeah, yep, yep. It sounds like one of those necessary Pauline rabbit trails, so if it is, then feel free. I mean, Paul can talk about Jew and Gentile, but what's the first, when's the first time in Romans he mentions Israel? It's further away. That's Romans 9. So that take, that's further away than Adam is from the I in Romans 7. And just to be later. clear, we are choosing which view is right, at least in part, evidentially, based on how far a discussion of a character or nation is from the moment in text that we are in Romans 7, the latter that, half. That, yeah, that's, that's not... But, I just, well, you I both just, keep proxy, saying it. You point, both keep I'm saying right it. I'm right by proxy. <laughs> Go ahead, Jonathan. I'm, no, I'm, doing, I'm saying I'm from the very I'm first chapter, the, you know, first to the Jew that he doesn't say Israel until later. I'm saying first to the Jews and to the mm -hmm. Greeks. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And my, my case is I think he is playing the part of the unregenerate Jew or Israelite under the law. And this is the predicament he's in. And that there are only one way out of this predicament. I don't think what and I don't think I do. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I interrupted him. I apologize. I, uh, for some reason, I, I thought I heard a, a pause and I wanted to jump in. I, well, I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think if you have a certain sort of Augustinian anthropology in the back of your mind, that this, this, uh, I was alive uh, and then the, the commandment came and then I died. If your view is, you know, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins at the moment of birth because you know, whatever, then I see how you get that. Uh, but I don't, I don't, we all have that. A lot of people have that anthropology from misreading Romans five itself. I, I think that this is the, the Israelite coming, you know, because he doesn't have a Christian view of the world coming to grips with his predicament in Adam, sure, because I'm not discounting Romans 5. I'm saying the discussion progresses that in light of Romans 5, this is the Israelite in the face of the dilemma of how does death get defeated and how come we can't live up to the law? Well, this is what I find going on and what delivers me from this body of death. And then the solution, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I think that this reading... Or I'm not saying like physically. The ones died. who are not was, in Adam. That's why I said earlier at the get go, I'm not talking about spiritually alive and then spiritually dead, right? I I, I jettisoned You're that about language. Dead, dead. Well, I'm not talking about physically dead no, either. He's talking I'm, about dead, dead. Yeah, 
Um, well, I think he's talking about spiritual death. Just doesn't want to cop no, up to he, it. Nick, because he wants. He's yeah, talking no. About death. I, I, I think I Nick use, wants I don't to like use. It. I, you, I agree. I don't use the term spiritual. I think it's a trash term. It doesn't mean anything anymore unless you actually spend hours analytically defining it, which I'm not willing to do. The spiritual death. You mean the phrase spiritual death? Right, but that's spiritual. It's just it's a it's a it's a phrase. It's it's just one of those phrases where I'm like, you have to tell me what you mean by spiritual. Well, what I mean, what what I mean, Nick, when I use use it, it, like existential. No, like like in the heavenlies, like like you know, in the heavenlies or spiritual, you know, Pauline the the Pauline language of the heavenlies. So uh, that's so that I would say eschatological. So that actually okay, but I I see what you're saying now. That makes more sense. Okay. Okay, have we beat this dead horse? Have we gotten out? Well, because we the point is, is that, that that I mean, this this dilemma of I'm in the flesh, not the spirit, yeah, is producing the death in me in light of this law that I can't fulfill. That's the problem of the Jew under Torah. That's yeah. unregenerate, and I think that this makes Nick my my case. Nick yeah. is, for those listening by only audio, on Nick's the podcast. expressing his disapproval. Yeah. But it's really a disapproval of why, why, yeah, okay, out with all of this other stuff that has nothing to do with the words in the chapter. Go ahead. Give us the bird's eye, the 10,000. For I'm speaking to those who know the law. That does not, that is not a, an inherently restrictive phrase to Jews. Because if he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, as he said he is, then this cannot be, by nature, a, a unregenerate Jew. That's chapter 7, verse uh, 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Knowing the law, Gentiles knew the law. Gentiles have known the law for a very long time. In fact, that's how they became Jews in the Old Testament. They flocked to Israel's God. And so I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's too restrictive. I think your view is too restrictive. It, it, and that's why I think Jew and Gentile, i.e. the universal, makes more sense and is more encompassing because it incorporates your view and other views as well, which makes it, I think, far more powerful. See, I, but your your view is just kind of like he doesn't mean anything by this phrase. It's the same way going back to Romans chapter two. Well, oh come on, JP. Oh come on. I, I, I I'm not Jewish, but I I got circumcised too. I'm not Jewish, so when he says those by nature, oh my gosh, you know, those by nature of the circumcision to take your logic, that's not that's not restrictive. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, even though. Because uh, a phrase like those who by nature are of the circumcision, that's not, I mean, there are circumcised Gentiles, so that can't be a, that can't be a narrative. No. No. Those, those phrases. Talk, let him talk. Talk, Nick. He means Jew by that stuff. Sure, he does, but here, to those that know the law does not mean exclusively Jewish person. The Gentiles know the law. They've been keeping it because he's writing to them right now in Rome. Well, assuming that it is in Rome, there's a textual variant there, I think. But he's the epistles of the Romans, it's written to Jews and Gentiles. They know the law. Like, and, and, like he can say, and again, if we're going to go by historical stuff, uh, this is being read out loud to a whole church of people, and all the people sitting here hearing this, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, young and old, are hearing this and going like, Oh yeah, we know the law because we're Christians. You know, we're Christians. Another well, okay, example from Romans Christian, chapter you know two. I mean. uh, another that's example. Too far away from Romans chapter seven, JP. The, the, the Jew first says, "No, I'm saying, you know, he's going back to the, all that first to the Jew, then to the Greek, and, and those who sinned without the law will perish without the law." Is he talking about Jews or Gentiles? And those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Is he talking about Jews or Gentiles? 
the way he uses this language, I'm talking to those who have the law because for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature or by instinct or by custom or habit, however you want to translate nature, do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves, uh, even though they don't have the law. When he's talking like this, I, I think you can't just say, oh, well, some of the Gentiles learned about bible stuff while they were hanging out with Christians. That's not what Paul's trying to do when he says, I'm talking to those who know the law. I think that is a restrictive statement in the same way these other statements in chapter 2 about those who are by nature circumcised and those who uh, don't have the law but by nature do it. Those are the Gentiles and those who have the law uh, will be judged by it that he's talking about Jews. So I think that I think that I can make a statement of restriction, especially since the interlocutor all throughout, until you get to chapter 11 where the interlocutor switches to the Gentile You'll say Jews were, you know, provoking off so we could be grafted in. That's the first time the interlocutor is represented as non-Jewish in chapter 11. So I think he's. this is a statement. Uh, those who know the law is just another way of saying, I've talked to you Jew folk. Explicitly. That's, that, that. But then he says, uh, I'm not ashamed for the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Actually, I should go back. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the flesh. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. By the gospel is the righteousness of God, blah, blah, blah. Uh, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He's writing, like, I don't see why you can say the law, or I'm sorry, for I'm speaking to those who know the law and make that a restrictive statement. I'm willing to make it a primary statement about Jew, Jewish In the same way I did in chapter but, two. But hold on, hold on. I, I let you finish, I... even though I'm The whole point is I'm speaking to those who know the law is not an inherently Jewish statement. It can incorporate Gentiles as well. And if that's the case, then you can't make the claim that he's speaking only or exclusively in your, your thesis. You can say it's maybe it's the primary person or it's the aspect, perhaps, but you can't make that restrictive of a statement when the context in the verse you appeal to doesn't make that restriction for you. Yes, in my does. opinion. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. how about this? I think this would be a good way to do this. Since this is kind of turned into a friendly debate slash discussion, <laughs> Uh, and since there is uh, some talking, there's over, no debate amongst friends. So, so uh, why don't you each take like a minute and summarize what you thought, what you what you want to say, uh, Jonathan? You want to go first? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> he said, "I don't actually like." I said, "I think Nick's view is is, and and I'm not totally like." opposed to his view being correct i just don't think it is right now i do think that his view is the second most likely i think that given what you read in romans 5 6 and 8 uh anyone who thinks that the the person described in romans 8 that's in the spirit not the flesh the person who has peace uh the person who has no condemnation uh the person who has life cannot be someone who is in the flesh in a body of death um at war um you know, sold under sin's power. That's that cannot be Paul talking about himself as a Christian. Once you also see, you know, go read some uh, books on the way all New Testament authors use Greco-Roman rhetoric. You'll see Paul uses just about every trick you can use in the Book of Romans, and I think the Prosopoia is just one of many of the other ones, and which is why I think it is properly a speech and character. Plus, he has 30 said, seconds, probably. <laughs> he has said I in other places in Galatians and 1 Corinthians where he doesn't mean I, Paul, but he uses the language I. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if I speak the tongues of, uh, of men and angels, I have no law. You know. You don't think he's using That's a rhetorical I. It's a rhetorical I. Um, 
so it is, but he could still. I mean, he's still using himself in the announcement. Never mind. You had the, the anyway. There's other. There's other places where he does it. So, uh, given that, I, I I would rather you take Nick's view than the view uh, that people want to say this is Paul giving autobiography or Paul talking about his daily struggles as a Christian and blah blah. That that view is ridiculous. I mean, I'm just saying it's not just wrong; it's ridiculous in light of who we are in Christ Jesus. And what we're to do in Christ Jesus. That's it. Nick. So this is where, um, to give the recap, uh, apocalyptic uh, is so important because apocalyptic um, focuses our, our attention on the major themes in the discourse of Romans 5 through 8. It focuses our attention on key themes of death and sin and subsequently Satan and all the principalities and powers. It focuses on the agentival nature of sin and death. Um, and those are specifically and intrinsically linked to the Adamic realm, specifically Romans 5, sin and death reign and do and perform all sorts of horrific actions. So when you get to Romans 6, you are talking about baptism as essentially one of the cure-alls to this, of course, death itself. And then when you get to Romans 7, Paul invokes Adam, as he did in Romans 5 and implicitly in Romans 1, to tie together the threads of all of this so that when he gets to Romans 9 through 11, he has a conversation about the major heart of his conversation, and that is why Israel is rejecting the Messiah, which is odd to him because of all people being put under the power of sin and death, and that's Romans 3 and Romans 7. But the whole point is this, that for the person who, and I'll go pastoral, the person who is within the Adamic realm, the, the person who is uh, subordinated to sin, who is a participant in sin, who does not have the spirit of God, who has not been baptized in set three, Paul's message is, not one of remain where you are or be content with where you are, but recognize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that to be in Christ is to be a member of God's family. That's adoption in Romans 8. That is the uh, pouring out of the Spirit, the Pentecost apocalyptic reality of the advent of the Spirit, and that the Spirit of God and the working of Jesus Christ and God the Father in Romans 8, the Trinity is even at work here to bring us out of glory, to destroy the Adamic realm and Adam, once and for all, that through Adam, transgression was brought into the world, and that transgression and sin uh, lives on, but only for a period of time until God eventually destroys all the principalities and powers. And as First Corinthians fifteen twenty six says, the final enemy to be annihilated is death. When finally God has rid all of creation from all things endemic. And that I think is a nice little microcosm of Romans five through eight, where the Spirit is at war against sin and flesh. And we're to be participants in putting to death the deeds of the body with the spirit. So, Excellent, guys. And I think I have learned from this. I hope that the audience has. Let's do a couple of questions. First of all, Bolt Vanderhuge says, I'm going to go with Nick on Paul and Jonathan on Peter. On John, they might battle to a draw, water and blood. That sounds like even a season of Survivor, of Survivor, advice. water and blood. When, when Pauline people write about are right you about up. to respond back to what yes, Nick Petrine, just said? That's, that's over. No, that's I'm, done. I'm responding the to the past. comment. Okay, okay. When Pauline <laughs> scholars write on Petrine literature, uh -huh. it's a complete train wreck. They don't know what they're talking about. When, when, when Petrine scholars write on Pauline stuff, they're always right. Oh, my gosh. Here's Amber, and Amber says, oh, I'm confused. I'm, I'm confused. I'm from Stone uh, the Stone-Campbell tradition. It taught Romans 7... In dying and being buried with Christ, we are freed from the condemnatory power of every law not enjoined by Jesus upon his disciples' thoughts. 
I mean, that looks pretty apocalyptic to me. You're free. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, that's, being set free, liberated. That's liberation language, which, which works would very be nice more like your term, right? That's yeah, that's your term, your side of things. Okay. Um, I mean, that's what we hope for. I would take. I, I would take. I mean, I know that the Bible doesn't have the pretty categories of moral, ceremonial, and so uh, of the law, but I do think that the basically any precepts in the Old Testament. Um, that that you can categorize in the moral category. So there's no New Testament prohibition on bestiology. But there is in the Old Testament. That seems hold on, hold on. What he's talking about with ceremonial, civic, and moral laws right. is when you look at the Old Testament law code, there are some things that are civic laws that wouldn't uh, apply today or ceremonial laws that wouldn't apply today. But some people want to say that the moral laws still apply today. And then there's this nuanced discussion about, no, none of it. Uh, well, apply isn't the right term fulfilled okay fulfilled uh, carry over yeah right but uh others will say no, no 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 even the moral all of that was fulfilled that's what it means for it to all be fulfilled but the law of christ would make up the moral uh affirmations that we would want and of course those are not going to be in conflict with the old testament moral right. and the, and the difference there would be civic laws would would have to do with more like what we would think of as laws today ceremonial laws would be like what, what sort of sacrifices you do or how to remain clean right. or whatever. And then moral laws would be moral laws, like what we, we would think of as, you know, don't push an old lady down type thing. Yeah, if, um, if Jesus didn't fulfill it uh, and he didn't specifically address it, but you can find it in the Old Testament, like bestiality, for example. Well, there's no prohibition in the New Testament. No one ever said don't have sex. Well, go to the Old Testament. You'll find out what God thinks. Don't do that. Well, Christ right. is the, uh, the end of the, or the, the perfection of the law in Romans uh, 10. So there's that too. See, we can follow the spirit, not the letter. And I think the spirit of the law, you can still find in the Old Testament letter to what is this aiming at? And the Holy Spirit will say, yeah, don't do that this bad. Yeah, the under... By, by the, the way, under... You, want, you, want, you want to know why uh, we have an Old Testament in the first place? Because Adam sinned. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Okay, J.C. Pam says unbelieving slash unregenerate Jews would have thought they were in the right, wouldn't they? To me, Nick sounds more convincing. That said, I wonder how he would interpret verse 25. I'd have to go look at it. Yeah. I can maybe read it for you right now. Verse 25 no, I, I got to read, read, read the verses before and after. Give me a sec. If you want the message version, just let me know. Um, <laughs> actually, the... Verse 25 is the end of the chapter, but it says, oh, thanks, be funny, God, right? yeah, so, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to start with uh, verse uh, 24. What a wretched man or wretched human that I am who will rescue me or liberate me from this body of death. So death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So deliverance from Adam through Jesus Christ. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, the transference of identity right there. But in my sinful nature or flesh, a slave to the law of sin. I don't understand quite what the issue is there. It sounds quite, quite what I was saying all along. Yeah. Why would Adam be? Why would Adam be stuck with this dilemma? Actually, the person in Adam, right here, technically. Yeah, because remember the Adamic person, all speaking as the Adamic one, are the ones in Adam from verses fourteen. Yeah, and I'm, but he's specifically talking about a specific type of of uh, Adamic person, which is the unregenerate Jew in Christ. Uh, so the unregenerate Jesus Christ, they thank you to God, who delivers me from Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. Are you thinking you understand the criticism the person is raising, Jonathan? Yeah. If you look at verse 25, 
that's not just anybody's problem. That that would be a specific type of endemic an person, which would be an unregenerate Jew in need of Christ, as opposed to an unregenerate anybody out in the first century that Paul could be t- thinking about. Well, then why did uh, you know? I'm, I'll, I'll let you have the last word on that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I, just, I just realized it was, I, I would just spiral out. So I'll let you have the last word on it. Yeah. That's no, it's okay. I, I I want you to be right. I don't care if I'm right or wrong about this. I just I just care that everyone stop thinking Paul's talking about the autobiographical or this is a Christian thing and that you can use this to. Well, Paul sit there and sinned all day long and couldn't help it, so I'm going to sin all day long instead of living in the spirit because if you walk according. I'll say this: it is it is transit right here. You have the transition from from the power of the spirit out of the power of flesh and death and Adam. So I'll say that because then I you like have the language next. of putting the death in the body in Romans 8. So. I like this next and last question that we're going to take today uh, because it, it is, well, it says, was Paul one of those following the father that was given to the son organically like John six, or is he a unique case? So let me just set it up. So um, when people talk about, you know, when Jesus was on earth and just after his ministry, it was kind of a, well, when Jesus was on earth, it was a unique uh, moment because you had people who were the true worshipers of God, the true Israel in Israel type thing. And they were, um, and, and, you know, people like me and Pritchett and probably Nick, I don't know, I don't want to speak for him, would argue that when what you have is those who were already following the one true God, when Jesus came on the scene, they were drawn to Jesus because they were listening to the one true God. In fact, the pastor says, I always forget what verse 40 something ish uh, says. Um, it says that those that heard and learned from the father were drawn to him. So you want to be drawn to the father. You want to be drawn to the, you want to be drawn yeah. then hear and learn from the father. You'll be drawn to Jesus. So um, the person is asking, so you take someone like Lydia or Cornelius, even though that was after the ascension and all that, but you take someone like Lydia or Cornelius and these are true uh, truly seeking for the one true God or truly worshiping the one true God. So when they hear about Jesus, it's a natural thing. But Paul is a little bit different. We would say here that Paul was definitely a worshiper, uh, you know, of uh, he was definitely he had the he was focused on the one true God. And when he heard about Jesus, he didn't get drawn to him right away. But actually, a special thing happened in his life that is very unique, I would say. And that is the road to Damascus experience. Um, I, so I think that makes do. So I think that's a pretty interesting question. What do you guys say about it? Yeah, Paul is a unique case because he was uh, one of the few statements you could actually say that he was called uh, or designated or named to be an apostle by God through direct intervention because Paul, the whole Damascus thing, because Paul was not one who had uh, listened and learned from the father and therefore wasn't drawn to the son. He was actually one of those who wanted to see those uh, like Stephen put to death uh, for being drawn to the son. So uh, by the father who was already in right relationship. So Paul was clearly in wrong relationship with God and was punishing God's true Israel uh, and then had to be knocked off his uh, rocker for, for uh, by Jesus himself to, to convert. So, yeah, there's. Yeah, he was not one of those following the father that was given. Any thoughts, Nick? But but Paul was set aside in the womb for this thing, as you know from Galatians. Yep. But 
I mean, there's even an argument I, I read somewhere a while back that the rich young ruler in the gospel, there may, some people have interpreted that to be Paul when the rich young ruler came to Jesus. So I don't I've know if I that. buy it, but it's certainly not insane. Certainly, you got to love Bible fan theories, right? <laughs> yeah, there will be a. Well, I, my favorite fan theory is that Joanna is Junia from Luke's Gospel. So, so that's that's just me. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been awesome. I, it, it's clear that we were having a good time as we have now made it 133 minutes, uh, or no, an hour and 33 minutes. That would uh, be 90. But uh, guys, this has been a blast. I think uh, we've seen support for from Christians, uh, you know, substantial support for both sides of this thing. Um, and I thought it was pretty fun. This this is this is one of those. Me and Pritchett have had several like this where we, you know, we kind of held different positions, but then it became a back and forth. And who knows what's going to happen? And I always find those the most fun, especially when yeah. I'm not in the hot seat. So this is what we do. Yeah. We broke. Well, just set it up, JP. Get a get a few other Romans nerds on here, and we'll hash it out. Let's do it. Let's have Pritchett put that together. Would people want that? I'm not going to do another poll, but I do want to know. I think it would be good if we did. You pick like several people that represent a variety of perspectives, and do the Romans roundtable. Or or if we did, even if we did it like once every few months, take a either a chapter or a very controversial concept or something. And let's just hash it out. I think it's good. We need to put that together, Nick. We need to put that together. Will you be available for that if we do it, Nick? We'll have to find a time everyone can meet on a semi-regular basis, like once a month. Maybe. I'm just afraid you've upset Nick and he won't come back on our show. Whatever. Oh, no, I, I, I just don't know if I. Oh, oh it's so triggered, Jesse. Oh my gosh. Uh, no, it's I. I, it's, I don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you right now, I'd make time once a month for that. That'd be that'd be yeah, a lot of fun. It would be a lot of fun. All right, guys, this has been fun. And Nick, we are so appreciative for you folks. Nick is a, a real live scholar with a real live book that is linked in the real live description. And you can go check it out as well as the other links to whatever Nick has there. Go there sub at New Testament Theologist. The perfection of our faithful wills, which sounds so like Lord of the Ringsy or something to me. <laughs> but I think it's really I'll cool. Go but, totally going for that. <laughs> or old republic star wars maybe but um <laughs> listen uh this has been awesome folks i appreciate the input of those who are here thank you for um showing up and watching us we really really do appreciate that we love all of you if you'd like to support what we're doing you can do that and we need your support um for as little as what you would do to buy us a cup of coffee you can help what we're doing and you can do that at patreon that's patreon.com slash Trinity Radio, and that is also in the description. But more than that, and 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 we mean that, but more than that, we are on staff, uh, on faculty at a school called Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, and you can uh, earn degrees um, in these sorts of ideas and topics uh, from your home, in your pajamas. And I think that sounds pretty cool. So uh, I've done it. You've done it before. Mm -hmm. I Luther Rice. I, I did it that way there and enjoyed that. But um, uh, I, you will have a better experience at Trinity than I had uh, learning distance at either Biola or Liberty. Praise the Lord. Yeah. All right, folks. This has been awesome. Nick, thanks for being here. And we'll catch you all next time on Trinity. Oh, radio. Hey.